Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Mackey. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Since our last chat about COVID-19, much more has been learned about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and we now have several vaccines against it. Joining us are two experts today for an update on the COVID-19 pandemic. The first is Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi, a pediatric infectious disease physician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. The second is Dr. Emily Levy, who is both a pediatric infectious disease physician and a pediatric critical care physician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Levy is also involved with pediatric infection control and has helped with guidelines for the management of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, also known as MIS-C. Remember that the information about the COVID-19 pandemic continues to change and evolve. So Dr. Levy and Dr. Rajapaksi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for having us. I think this is going to be great. We have so much that is new in regards to the pandemic, including um, immunizations and other things. Um, so let's get started. Let's give me an update about the current situation about the SARS-CoV uh, infection about the United, throughout the United States. So right now we're in a still very concerning stage of the pandemic. We are seeing still high rates of transmission in communities across the country. And we're well into this third wave uh, now of the pandemic. Um, as we kind of come out of the, the holiday season, we are expecting to see a rise in case numbers as well. And we really have been seeing this, especially over the last few days also. So uh, in the United States, currently more than 21 million cases, uh, 360,000 people have died. And we do think that these numbers are likely a, an underestimate of the true burden of disease and death that we've had in this country. Yesterday, uh, they reported uh, almost 4,000 deaths, which is the, a new single day record for uh, deaths from this infection. And so certainly very concerning. And right now in hospitals around the country, we have the highest number of people admitted and uh, healthcare systems in many areas are uh, quite stretched. And so we're, we're still in a very concerning situation. Um, when it comes to children, um, as of December 31st of 2020, uh, there have been about uh, just over 2 million cases reported in children. So they've made up about 12.4% uh, of all cases of infection in the country. Um, thankfully, uh, still we're seeing generally that most children um, have mild or uh, asymptomatic illness and infection, but there have been children, including previously healthy children who have unfortunately died, died from this infection. And that's why we're still encouraging everyone to really continue to follow the preventative uh, recommendations that have been in place. And we'll be reviewing some of those a bit later today. Um, we are seeing uh, increasing rates of transmission uh, amongst children, amongst communities in general. Um, and in the last uh, two weeks that ended at the uh, end of 2020, there was a 20% increase almost uh, amongst infections in kids. So um, definitely the virus is still out there. It's very active and circulating a lot in the communities. I would say the, the hot spots in the country right now, so Southern California um, has had a, a significant rise in cases uh, to the point where they're having to do things like rationing oxygen supplies and, and um, things like that. And so very scary and, and worrisome. And so we especially need people living in those areas to, to do their best in adhering to the recommendations um, in Texas and some of the northeastern parts of the United States as well. We're seeing increases in cases. So that's where things are, are at now. And um, kind of where we expect things to go with the holidays is um, probably to get get a bit worse before we start to see any improvement. 
So you mentioned the number of infections in children, you know, has, has there's been an increase. Um, and what we know about how the SARS-CoV-2 infection um, is spread, it continues to evolve as well. Um, has there been any updates about the current research about the role of children um, and the role that they have in spreading the virus? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, so um, like Dr. Rajapaksi said, globally, fewer cases of COVID-19 have been reported in children compared to what you would expect kind of in terms of their overall percentages in the population. But this is typically hypothesized to be because they have much more mild symptoms and so are less likely to require hospitalization or present to care, especially in countries where testing is limited, which included our own country for much of the pandemic. Um, it was harder to get a COVID-19 test um, if you had mild symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not thought that children are less likely to get COVID-19 at this point. There's been two recent virologic studies that show that children do tend to have mild illness um, and those with mild illness have equivalent or more viral RNA in their noses as compared to adults with mild illness when they are infected. Um, and children are thought to transmit COVID nearly as much as their asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic adult counterparts. That is comparing to an adult with mild symptoms, they would have similar transmission of the virus. Um, in general, as the pandemic has evolved, we've seen that adults um, and children with critical illness have higher viral loads than those with mild illness in some settings. And so um, people who are very, very ill may have more virus to transmit um, and children have more mild uh, symptoms, um, but when you compare them to adults with mild symptoms, they have just as much virus in their nose and are just as likely to transmit it. The one caveat is that infants generally have less forceful droplet production um, than older children. And that's one of the reasons that infants in hospital settings are less likely to transmit all sorts of uh, viral diseases like flu and even RSV because when they sneeze or cough, they just don't produce the same droplet load. Um, and so uh, one thing to take away from this is that, um, as we all have seen in the media and heard in the news, children may be more likely to be asymptomatic spreaders than adults because we think that they have the same amount of virus, are nearly as likely to transmit it in most settings, and tend to have very asymptomatic or mild disease. Those are, those are good points to keep in mind. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about the UK virus. There's a new strain um, that's been identified. What do we know about the virus at this point? I know it's it's, it's an evolving situation um, and there's been talk of it potentially being more infectious. Is that is that borne out so far in the research? Sure, yeah. So there's been a lot in the media about different mm -hmm. viral strains of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so Stepping back um, just for a second, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus um, and RNA viruses in general are very likely to connect, uh, collect mutations um, over time. And that's because of the way RNA viruses um, replicate their RNA into DNA into RNA and then kind of um, transmit from person to person. Most of the mutations that have arisen um, in COVID-19 have had no effect um, or are harmful to the virus themselves. So when a mutation arises where it can't synthesize the right proteins anymore, that strain of the virus kind of dies out over time. Um, but some of the mutations have created some differences in the way the disease manifests in humans. Um, mutations or strains are in part thought to be why the COVID-19 Italy variant was a little different in terms of clinical characteristics than what we saw in the initial Wuhan variant. 
Um, and two of the more recent strains um, or collections of mutations um, have been mentioned more frequently in the news, and that's the South African variant and the UK variant, which you mentioned. So the UK variant, which is also known as B117, has um, quite a bit of genetic mutations compared to what we saw as the original COVID-19 mm. virus. Um, and based on epidemiologic evidence in the UK, it appears to have higher transmission than some variants, but doesn't appear to cause more severe disease. Um, and even though it may be a little bit more contagious would the way be kind of another way to say it has higher transmission, the same containment measures should work. So social distancing, face masks, hand washing, it's still a droplet virus that's transmitted in the same way that we know COVID-19 is transmitted. The South African variant, which is a bit newer in the news, um, is also known as 501B2. It also seems to have higher transmission, but additionally, it seems to have slightly higher viral loads in infected mm -hmm. patients. Um, and it's not clear yet if that translates to more severe illness or not. Um, this South African variant carries a mutation in the spike protein, um, which is not present in the UK train, strain. And that mutation um, in part evades some of the antibodies that humans produce against COVID-19. However, both variants are likely to be protected against by COVID-19 vaccines. We're gonna get into the vaccines in depth in a bit, but the vaccines target the spike protein in a broad way that includes many, many different parts of the spike protein that are conserved across multiple COVID-19 strains and across every mutation that we've seen so far. So if there is any impact on vaccine immunity, we expect it to be small. Um, and of the two, we expect that the South African variant might have, um, there might be more impact on vaccine immunity because it has more mutations in the spike protein. But again, we expect that um, difference to be small if we see anything at all. Okay. Great, thanks for that update. Um, let's talk a little bit about children. So there's been a, a, a large movement to distance learning models. Um, a lot of states or local um, school districts are starting to think about trying to get kids back into schools, um, regardless um, kind of where that we're at in the pandemic. So what are some important safety measures that families and children should be keeping in mind and practicing um, as they return to an in-person learning model? Yeah, so I think um, back in September, we obviously had a lot of, of discussions about this as the mm -hmm. start of the new school year and um, a bit of an unknown as to what we would see when schools were reopened in person. And I think we did learn uh, quite a bit uh, through the fall um, as to the impact of schools and having children congregating in school settings and um, how this relates to outbreaks in different communities. And I think what the biggest thing that we learned was um, and kind of what we expected was that in areas where there's a lot of transmission happening within the community, you're going to see uh, more cases in schools. Mm -hmm. um, but the flip side to that was um, schools didn't seem to drive community related outbreaks. And so okay. sure, they mirror and they reflect what we're seeing in the surrounding community, but they weren't a significant driver of outbreaks within a community. So that was really a helpful piece of information, I think, for all of us. Um, that being said, we're still having high rates of transmission in many communities around the country. And so the decision to return kids to school um, now this in this part of the school year, it needs to be again made very carefully um, with your state and local public health officials and schools and families working in partnership. So the recommendations regarding prevention um, haven't really changed since we, we last spoke. The things in schools uh, that work are the things that work in the community. So that is um, masking, 
hand washing, physical distancing, um, avoiding large groups congregating together. Um, with the new school year starting um, now, uh, new semester, it's a great chance to uh, relook at your kids' masks, make sure that they're in good condition, that they still fit well, that they're clean, that they're not broken. Um, and uh, a reminder just on how to put them on, take them off properly and the types of situations that they need to be be wearing them in. I think it's always um, a good good refresher at the start of a new I part love of the that. school year. Mm -hmm. They need um, a mask tune-up. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And also a great time to review how to wash your hands properly. I think it's something that we all think we're, we're doing properly, <laughs> but actually to do it properly takes some, some work and effort and to mm -hmm. review the 20 to 30 seconds as uh, so open water or alcohol-based hand rub and making sure that you get all the parts of your hands that are commonly missed, like the thumbs and the back of the hands and your wrists. Um, again, good reminders to, to tell the kids before they start to go back if they are going back in your area. Perfect. Um, the other thing that we are seeing, you know, there's quite very, there's many variations across the U.S., but some um, loca locations are going back to sports participation for both in-person practice um, and for games um, and competition. So, but there has been somewhat of a shift in more states or local school districts are requiring um, students to wear masks during practice and during competition. Um, so can we talk a little bit about what we know, why this, this might be a helpful thing to decrease viral spread? Yeah, sure. So um, just like in a school classroom, in the community, um, in hospital settings, masks have been shown to drastically reduce transmission from one individual to another. So just a reminder that when you're wearing a mask, you're mostly protecting the people around you, although you are protecting yourself a little bit, but most of it has to do with droplets coming out of you mm -hmm. to other people. And um, again, children are very likely to have asymptomatic COVID, which is one of the great things about what we've seen in COVID and pediatrics, but also one of the challenging things about stopping the pandemic and transmission. Um, and so in all settings where people are around other people, the best public health and individual health prevention um, measure in terms of transmission is, is masking as far as we know right now, especially in settings where you can't social distance and that includes um, sports environments. Um, we don't have any evidence that masks increase CO2 retention or hypercarbia as it's known in um, medical terminology. And we don't have any evidence that it should increase any sort of respiratory distress um, or um, decrease oxygen to vital organs like your brain and healthy people. Um, and what I would say is if children have trouble wearing a mask when they're playing sports because of respiratory distress, that child should probably be evaluated by a doctor or a physician before they continue playing sports in any sort of setting because that would indicate that there was potentially something concerning going on about um, the child's respiratory mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would add, it's kind of, it's all in, you know, how it's presented to your child or your teenager. Um, my kids do fantastic doing all kinds of exercise, biking, running, downhill skiing, and it, it's just accepted and, and, um, and sledding, they, they're wearing their masks during that as well. So I think it's, it's, present it to them as, as this is what we do, and this is how we protect other people, and this is how we be good citizens of our community. So um, I think we should move on to talking about um, immunizations at this point. Um, it's been very exciting because we've seen a rollout of two vaccinations in the United States, um, but let's talk a little bit more. So what do we know about the vaccinations that are currently approved in the United States? Um, can you talk a little bit about their specifics? How are they different as well? 
Sure, yeah. So there are two vaccines that have received emergency use authorization, also known as an EUA in the US. They're both mRNA vaccines. Um, one is produced by Moderna and the other by Pfizer. Um, and these two vaccines are, are more similar than different. So I'll just talk a little bit about how they work as a group of both of them first, and then talk about some of the minor differences between them. So both vaccines contain mRNA, messenger RNA, that encodes a very small part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the spike protein, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and that messenger RNA is incorporated by host cells temporarily. It's a very short-lived piece of RNA. So it's actually not DNA and it never incorporates into the cell DNA. Um, but when the RNA gets into the human cells, it uses the human cell kind of machinery to produce spike proteins. Um, and that spike protein shows up on the surface of the cell and then our immune system detects it as foreign. Um, and this acts as um, kind of a trigger to our immune system that if it ever sees that spike protein again, it will recognize it as a foreign invader so that when it sees a spike protein from SARS-CoV-2 that's used kind of similar mRNA to produce the spike protein, it will know that it's an invader. Um, and this is, you know, many vaccines work by developing kind of immune memory in this way, but the mRNA way of, of producing immune memory is a more novel and actually um, more safe than some of the other vaccines that we, we use in terms of there's no actual virus being introduced into humans. There's no live virus that could make immunosuppressed individuals sick. Um, so if, if the human immune system ever sees that spike protein again, then it has kind of a memory immune response where it recognizes it as foreign and attacks the COVID-19 virus quicker. Um, both vaccines are more than 90% effective to prevent severe COVID-19. Um, we don't know much about transmission reduction from both vaccines. So that is, you could be vaccinated, be completely vaccinated, get asymptomatic or very mild COVID and still transmit it to someone who's not vaccinated and they could get severe COVID. Because the way these vaccines were studied were about reducing symptomatic or severe COVID and they we were not able to study transmission initially. Um, Moderna is approved for those over 18, while Pfizer is approved for those over 16. Um, and both um, vaccines have initiated testing in younger children. And Dr. Rajapaksi is, I think, going to talk a little bit more about this in a second. Um, Pfizer is a three-week double-dose interval, and Moderna is a four-week double-dose interval. Um, and neither of them were studied completely in terms of single-dose or partial doses and whether that would um, induce immunity as well. And so although some of that has been discussed in the media and the news at this point in the United States, we're still committed to giving full two-dose series right now in terms of how we're vaccinating individuals. Um, and lastly, Pfizer requires colder temperature for storage. So in under-resourced settings, um, Moderna may be um, a bit easier to get to those settings and not need to keep it as cold and kind of hospital grade minus 80 type freezers. Perfect. We've had excellent questions coming in about the vaccines. Um, and you touched on one of them about possibly still being able to transmit, but I just want to ask you a question. Is it possible that the vaccine can cause infection in people um, and they can then become asymptomatic carriers? No, it's not possible that the vaccine can cause COVID-19 infection. It only includes a very, very tiny 
part of the genetic blueprint for the mm -hmm. virus. So just kind of a fraction of what you would need to synthesize the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus. It just includes the spike protein. So there's no way for it to cause an infection in someone. Perfect. I know that you mentioned that before. I just want to make sure it's real clear because I know that that's a big concern that a lot of people have because it's such a different technology from vaccines that we've had in the past. Um, it may be worth mentioning um, that you might feel a little bit sick when you get the vaccine. Yes, talk and we about may that. touch on that a bit. Yes, more, talk on that, please. Because it induces an immune response where your immune system is recognizing something as foreign. You may even get a fever, you may get a headache, you may get kind of muscle aches, some of the symptoms that you can get when you're sick with any virus. And those symptoms come from your immune system um, being activated against something foreign, but not because there's any infection by a, by a virus itself when you're getting the vaccine. You know, again, unlike some of the live vaccinations that we give where um, it virus and then we killed the virus and made it safe to go into mm -hmm. human hosts. There's no virus in this vaccine. It's just a tiny piece of the of the virus's uh, genetic material. Perfect. All right, let's move on so we can get kind of keep getting through so many of the excellent questions we have about vaccinations. Um, so one reservation that people have had is in regards to the safety of these vaccinations as they were developed very quickly um, and given the emergency youth authorization. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the safety of these vaccinations and also the effectiveness um, that we know from the studies that were done? Yeah, so that's a, a fantastic question, one that we've been getting a lot in our, our practice as well from colleagues as well as uh, patients and really everyone in the public has been wondering about this. I think when we talk about fast track vaccine, it's really important to understand what parts of the process were fast tracked here. Um, and what was fast tracked was really a lot of the uh, kind of regulatory approvals, the paperwork, the data analysis. Um, what was not fast tracked was the science of coming up with this vaccine and uh, the quality of the clinical trials that were performed. And so these trials were performed in tens of, of thousands of, of people. They were all followed very closely and they continue to be followed. Those trials are, are still ongoing, but given the serious nature of the, the pandemic, that's why um, the vaccines were proposed for emergency use authorization um, before uh, the usual period um, that we would wait uh, was up. And so um, really it's important to, to re remember that and to understand that uh, they have really done everything uh, to demonstrate that these vaccines are highly effective and uh, very safe to use. Um, when we look at any vaccine, the way that we do that is by something called uh, clinical trials. And that means uh, taking a population of people um, that you're interested in, in studying the vaccine and understanding its safety and efficacy in and uh, dividing them in randomly into two different groups, a group that gets the vaccine and a group that gets a placebo or a saltwater solution that would not have any activity. And then you follow those two groups uh, for multiple things, including um, any side effects or symptoms they may have experienced, uh, as well as whether they, in this case, whether they um, got COVID-19 or not, and if they did, what their symptoms or severity of illness were. And so that's exactly what they did um, for these. Uh, as Dr. Levy mentioned earlier, these um, vaccines are approved, the Pfizer one for over 16 and Moderna for over 18. So these were adult studies that were, were performed. Um, and so uh, now we have expanded the, the age group that we're testing these in uh, to include kids. Um, depending on the exact uh, vaccine. I think the Pfizer one now is enrolling kids over 12. Um, some of the other ones have gone down to uh, five years of age. Um, and so that's kind of the next stage in this, especially for all of us as pediatricians. Um, 
the vaccine will not be, be given to any children until we've demonstrated that it's safe and effective in them as well. And so those are the studies that we're, we're waiting for now for, for our patients um, and kind of where things are at. Um, I think in terms of safety of these, Dr. Levy touched on this as well, but really the um, things that have been seen have been mild temporary uh, reactions that we see with many of the vaccines that we give, including many of the routine childhood vaccines that are currently in the immunization schedule. So these are things like some pain, redness, swelling around where the vaccine is given. Um, some people might experience uh, some fever, uh, headache, uh, muscle aches and pains. And um, these are all uh, kind of temporary and short-lived and generally either don't need anything at all or respond to a dose of acetaminophen or um, an anti-fever medication and resolve on their own. Um, some people may be more likely to experience these after they get the second dose, but really what uh, we're, we're saying is those are actually good things in this situation. They kind of show that your body is responding well and mounting mm -hmm. a good response. So I was actually hoping that I might have some of these things to, to demonstrate that mm -hmm. my body was creating a good, strong immune response, and they're all temporary and kind of short-lived. The one um, serious uh, adverse event that people have probably been hearing about and seeing in the news, because they've gotten um, a lot of attention in the news, even though they are very rare, is uh, the risk of an allergic reaction. There have been some cases of anaphylaxis, which is a serious type of allergic reaction, generally amongst people who have had prior reactions to either a vaccine or injectable product um, in the past. And so if you fall into to that category, um, it's worth talking with your, your healthcare provider. Um, but the recommendations are for, for most people that the observation period is a bit longer if you have a history of anaphylaxis to prior vaccination, um, observing for them for 30 minutes instead of the recommended 15 minutes. Um, but uh, really uh, that has been uh, rare, uh, rare but serious uh, events that we have seen. Um, otherwise there haven't been any other signals for other kind of serious or, or long-term issues. One other group that we've had a lot of questions about, and I know I've people have been asking them to me as well, is what about the use of the vaccination in women who may be pregnant or women who may be breastfeeding? Um, is it safe for them to use or are we still needing to gather more information about that? Yeah, so I would say the most common question um, that I've gotten um, so far is about uh, fertility um, people who are planning future pregnancies, people who are pregnant or women who are breastfeeding. Um, and so um, at this point, neither vaccine was studied in pregnant humans. There is some animal data from Moderna um, that was very encouraging. There were no teratogenic effects, no effects on the fetus at all observed in the animal data that we have. But it's important to note that of the trials that Dr. Rajapaksi mentioned, they there weren't intentionally enrolling pregnant women in those trials, although they are following women who became pregnant during the trial or who became pregnant after the trial. Um, mechanistically, we don't expect this vaccine to reach fetuses at all, and we certainly wouldn't expect it to be harmful. Um, and um, mechanistically, we don't expect it to be excreted in breast milk at all. Um, as I mentioned, this doesn't um, contain any DNA that's incorporated into cellular DNA. So there's nothing that could mutate anything in the vaccine. Um, and the RNA that actually is in the vaccine doesn't last very long. That was one of the biggest problems they had with making the vaccine. It only lasts a day or two. Um, so 
Um, what we do know is that pregnant women are particularly susceptible to severe COVID and um, appear to be at significant risk for severe COVID infection. And that includes significant harm to fetuses, um, infants, and women during pregnancy. Um, and so personally, I'm recommending pregnant colleagues and friends to get the vaccine. Um, I'm certainly recommending anyone who has um, fertility concerns to go ahead and get the vaccine because at this point, we don't expect that it would um, impact future fertility at all. And there have been people who have gotten pregnant after having the vaccine. Um, if folks are really, really anxious about it and currently pregnant, um, one of the things that some physicians are recommending is to wait until the second trimester of pregnancy if they're currently in the first trimester. And that's merely because of the side effects of inflammation that Dr. Rajapaksi and I both mentioned, which mm -hmm. is that the vaccine can cause a fever, myalgias, and an inflammatory response in your body, which is a sign that the vaccine is working. And um, there are some folks who would maybe concerned about having that type of inflammatory response during first trimester of pregnancy, because in theory, it could increase percentages of miscarriages during first trimester. We have not seen that though in practice. Um, there's some information on the American College of um, OB-GYN's um, official website. And I would encourage women who have concerns, um, who are planning pregnancy or who are currently pregnant to speak to their OB-GYN providers about the decision. Um, but what we've seen nationally is that the experts in this, that is our colleagues in um, obstetrics and gynecology, typically are recommending that pregnant women get the vaccine because the um, severity of having COVID during pregnancy is something that we know is quite serious and can be quite bad for pregnancy. Um, in terms of the breastfeeding, um, we really, you know, again, there's no evidence that the vaccine would be um, excreted in breast milk, but even if it were, um, mRNA is a, is a um, material that would be typically degraded by human digestive kind of secretions, and it wouldn't be something that we would think would reach the, the infant's bloodstream through breast milk, and even if it did, we wouldn't expect that there would be any severe harm. So um, for breastfeeding women, I'm recommending that they go ahead and get the vaccine with no concerns. And if they have, you know, significant anxiety about it, you can always kind of pump and dump for a day or two, um, knowing that the RNA really only lasts in your system for a day or two. Fantastic. What other, um, you mentioned some resources, Dr. Levy um, and Dr. Rajapaksi, what are the resources about vaccine safety would you recommend for families uh, and people to look at? So it's really important uh, that everyone gets their information from uh, reliable resources. As with many things related to the pandemic, there's been a lot of uh, misinformation circulated online. And so there's a few places that I would direct people to get um, really good, accurate evidence-based information. Um, one is the CDC website. Uh, they have a specific section on COVID-19 vaccines, and this is going to be updated on an ongoing basis as uh, we learn more and as more vaccines become available. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics also has a frequently asked questions um, site that has uh, addresses a lot of common questions that we've been getting as well. And so it's a really nice kind of summary of, of what we know right now. Um, and then the Mayo Clinic also has a great vaccine website that we're going to be keeping updated with, with uh, our latest guidance and recommendations. Um, all of those links will be uh, available um, shortly uh, with these postings also to, so that people can easily access them. 
Absolutely. I would also recommend everyone uh, keep a close eye on their state and local public health websites. I think this is where you'll probably get the most um, up-to-date information on when uh, you may become eligible for vaccination or when vaccination is available for you and your family. Um, and so I would encourage you to look there for, for very local guidance as well. Perfect. So I think you alluded, Dr. Rajapaksi, to the fact that you've already received your vaccination. Um, is that right? And Dr. Levy, have you received yours yet? Yep, I have. Um, Dr. Rajapaksi, do you want to go first or do you want me to take this one first? Um, I can go. I got mine uh, four days ago, so on Monday Monday Ooh. of this week. Uh, so very exciting for all of us, especially mm -hmm. in infectious diseases who have been, been at this for a year along with all the rest of you. Um, and so as soon as I got my email message saying that I was eligible, um, I signed up and was there. And I will say uh, really all I had was a mildly sore arm when I woke up the next morning. And other than that, um, and I was happy about that as, as I kind of already mentioned. Um, and other than that, I'm feeling completely fine. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight actually from a safety perspective is um, when uh, we got our vaccines, we were uh, told about this vSafe program through through the CDC. So as I mentioned, large studies have been done to look at the safety of these vaccines, but um, even the early people who are getting vaccinated um, can sign up for this vSafe program where, so every day since I've gotten the vaccine around two o'clock in the afternoon, I get a text message that asks me about whether I've had fever or how I'm feeling. And this information is all sent back to the CDC. So they're kind of tracking and monitoring this um, on a real-time basis as well. So a lot of things that have been put in place to, to make sure that um, what we saw in the trials is, is borne out as we roll out this vaccine. But uh, yeah, got my first dose and just happy about it and feeling great. Mm -hmm. Dr. Levy? Um, and yeah, yeah, I work in our pediatric COVID ICU um, as one of my um, clinical practices. And so um, because of the way we rolled out to physicians was able to get uh, physicians and other healthcare providers obviously was able to get it um, in um, mid-December. Um, so I'm actually getting my second vaccine um, tomorrow. Um, and um, similar to Dr. Rajapaksi had very few um, side effects. I was actually hoping for more, um, as she <laughs> Me mentioned, too. because, you know, there's kind of within the ID community, we think the, the more inflammation you have, maybe the, the better, but we expect that the vaccines will induce immunity in, in everybody and um, up to 90% for severe disease. So it's kind of just a funny thing among ID providers. Um, but I had a little bit of arm soreness um, no real fevers. Um, and I would say it was gone by 24 hours after the first dose. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to get my second dose this week. Mm -hmm. um, we were going to talk just a little bit about kind of how vaccinations are being rolled out. Um, mm -hmm. And I can touch on that very briefly. Um, so um, vaccine phases are recommendations from the CDC um, to individual states. And then states are actually able to allocate vaccinations along, uh, according to their own kind of public health decisions and public health guidelines. The CDC guidelines attempted to follow specific ethical concepts um, as well as principles of healthcare delivery, like put on your own oxygen before you assist the passenger next to you to put on their oxygen. And so um, 
that's one of the reasons that healthcare providers were prioritized in the first wave so that we could continue to take care of the sickest members of the population with COVID. They were also aimed at preserving societal function and reducing the burden of COVID-19 on groups who have had the greatest burden, that is older adults or adults in long-term care facilities. Um, and long-term care residents were also placed by the CDC in phase 1A. There's been some variation um, by state. And so like Dr. Rajapaksi mentioned, um, we'd recommend that you pay specific attention to your state guidelines about when vaccines are available to specific populations. But in general, older adults, folks who have um, higher risk based on comorbidities and other essential workers like teachers and bus drivers um, and um, folks who um, keep our mail system and other essential services running are in, um, thought to be in the next phases. Perfect. What are you both telling, not just pregnant women that are coming to you or breastfeeding women, um, what are you telling your friends? What are you telling your family? I know that we've had so many people ask us, are you going to get it? Um, should I get it? Um, what do you say to that? So I've been encouraging everyone as soon as they become eligible for a vaccine that they they should take it. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, vaccine is not what's gonna end this pandemic. You've probably heard vaccination is. And so mm -hmm. vaccines sitting in vials are not going to kind of help us get through this. We really need people to, to take the vaccinations. Um, and I would not recommend it to people I cared about or my patients if I was not uh, fully believing in the safety and the efficacy of this vaccine, and I do. And so I have strongly recommended it to, to all of my uh, loved ones. Obviously, we mostly care for children and uh, they are not eligible for it yet. Um, but as soon as we have the data that shows that it's safe and effective, I will be strongly recommending it to all of my patients as well. Yeah, similar. I mean, I'm kind of counting down the days um, for older family members to be mm -hmm. able to receive their vaccines in the next couple of waves who are not healthcare workers. Um, and um, my husband is a healthcare worker as well, but in a different department than me and doesn't work in a COVID unit. So he was in a later wave of the vaccination phases and we were just kind of counting down the days until he would be able to sign up and get his vaccine. Mm -hmm. So everyone, you know, I love and care about, I want them to be able to be protected against symptomatic COVID. In addition to acknowledging that this is a very important public health measure. And if we're able to vaccinate many people in the population will be one of the ways that we're able to reduce the burden of the pandemic. Um, I'm also recommending it to pregnant friends, family, um, and as I mentioned, pregnant colleagues, um, including um, those who work with COVID patients, but also including those who don't work directly with COVID patients or don't interact directly with COVID patients. So let's do kind of random fire on a couple myths about vaccinations. Um, so if you've had COVID, do you still need the vaccine? Yes or no? Yes. Um, so right now we're recommending that um, you wait until 90 days after your COVID was diagnosed. And that's because of vaccine allocation and the fact mm -hmm. that we don't have vaccines available for everybody right now. Um, but we know from the literature that although it's rarer, you can become reinfected with COVID. We mm -hmm. expect that immunity after having COVID infection lasts about 90 days or longer. And so we're recommending that folks on day 91 and later start um, getting their vaccine. Okay. Um, next one is if once you got the vaccine, you don't have to wear the mask anymore. Is that true or false? So I think Dr. Levy alluded to this earlier, mm -hmm. but um, the studies that were done for the vaccine were really looking at preventing symptomatic disease and mm -hmm. did not look at transmission necessarily as, as an endpoint. I think we'll learn more about transmission as more people get vaccinated uh, now, but um, the current recommendations are even once you've had the vaccine, you should continue to, to wear your mask and practice the other um, 
preventative measures like physical distancing, um, especially until we really are able to drive down community transmission. Um, so yes, you still need to wear your mask even if you've gotten both doses of your vaccine. I'll also mention, um, we talked a bit about uh, the currently approved vaccines having two doses. And really for kind of peak protection, you're looking at um, seven to 14 days after the second dose of, of vaccine. Um, there is still significant protection derived from a single dose, um, but it's important to recognize that if you've had, had one dose, um, you still need to get that second dose um, to have protection. Okay. Um, and I'll just add to that, um, remember, um, you know, as we spoke about before, the vaccine mostly protects you against COVID and the mask mostly protects the other people around you against COVID. And so um, you may be still interacting with people in your household or in the community or children who are not eligible for the vaccine for a long time after initial um, kind of vaccine phases are rolling out in the population. And so wearing your mask is the best way to prevent children and other people in the population who haven't been able to be vaccinated against COVID that you could be carrying and not know it. Okay, real quickly, I wanna to get to Miss C. We have many people on that are asking about that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. What is it and what are the symptoms? Sure, and I'll also mention there's um, more information on the Mayo Clinic um, website about MIS-C, which is an article that several of us have kind of participated in and vetted, um, and so there's information online as well. Um, so MIS-C, um, which is M-I-S-C, is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, it's a post-infectious inflammatory response where the immune system overreacts to stimulation from the virus. Um, mostly we've seen it in children. So most cases in the United States have been between uh, in children between one to 14 years old with an average age of eight years old. We have seen it in some young adults, but it's been more rare. Um, Children um, affected with MIS-C can have very asymptomatic or very mild COVID and then have kind of this severe immune reaction um, with um, an average of about four weeks after they were infected. So it's often between two to six weeks after the initial infection occurred. Um, MIS-C can include rash, vomiting, diarrhea, cardiac symptoms like low blood pressure, fatigue, or altered mental status. And initially earlier on in the pandemic was often compared to Kawasaki disease, which is another um, immune dysregulation disease we see in children because it can cause longer term cardiac or heart side effects. Um, even after the, the actual symptoms of MIS-C have subsided. Um, more than 75% of cases that have occurred in the United States have occurred in Black or Hispanic children. Um, and so, again, we're seeing um, kind of a, a misrepresentation even beyond what we've seen in terms of the way acute COVID has um, affected those populations. Um, and as of early December, we've had 1,200, almost 1,300 cases in the United States and 23 deaths. So although it's severe, it's rare, um, and it's definitely important to know about, but it's also important to emphasize that it's rare. Here in Minnesota, we've had about 20 cases total reported to the CDC thus far. Um, and it's important to note that although we're seeing it more frequently um, in a tertiary referral center, which is Mayo Rochester, we're getting in referrals from many states, including Minnesota. Um, and, and so emphasizing that it's rare is um, one of the things that I want people to hear who are on the call. Mm -hmm. um, 
Um, it's being actively studied clinically and from an immunobiology lab perspective. We still don't know that much about this disease, but we do know that it's an inflammatory mediated response. And so anti-inflammatory treatments have been shown to work best to kind of reduce or mitigate the symptoms. And those would be things like steroids as well as IV immunoglobulins, um, which um, work in Kawasaki disease as well. And that was one of the reasons they were initially tried in MIS-C. Okay. So just to recap about MIS-C for families, it's two to four weeks after the illness or two to six weeks or so. And the initial symptoms usually start, what would families be looking for? So one of the important things to highlight is that you have to have a fever to meet MIS-C okay. criteria. And so approximately four weeks after a household was sick with COVID is what we normally hear as kind of the presenting story. So the child may have had very mild or asymptomatic disease, but the parents often knew that they had COVID or had tested positive, um, often starts with a higher fever. And then the most common presented symptom, presenting symptoms are GI, so vomiting or diarrhea or abdominal pain, but a variety of symptoms can happen, including headaches, altered mental status, um, feeling kind of faint rash or inflammation in the whites of your eyes, conjunctivitis we often see, um, and sometimes rashes on the palms or soles of your feet as well as in the child's mouth. Dr. Rajapoxi, Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And, you know, everyone stay tuned because we're going to be bringing you a lot more, lot more information about COVID-19 in the next coming weeks. We'll be talking about specifically about sports um, and COVID-19 and return to play following infection. And we'll be talking about how to really help your child navigate mental health um, and the stressors that have come um, with this pandemic. Remember, everyone, please stay safe and remember to get your COVID vaccine when available to you. Have a great day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.